Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, could you turn with me to Luke chapter 1? We'll be reading uh, for our second week of Advent. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he carried her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, she has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Thank you, Andrea, for reading for us. Good morning, everyone. My name is Spencer. I get to be the pastor of Missional Living for Church of the City. We're talking about peace this morning, and I know we all have arrived here in various different states of mind. So as we always do, let's pause. Let's check in, see how you're feeling, what's going on in your body, invite the Holy Spirit to be present with you, and then we'll continue on. Jesus, I pray that we would experience the peace that you promised us this morning and this Christmas season. I pray this in your name. Amen. Peace is interesting because it can mean so many different things to so many different people, can't it? For many people, they would probably define peace primarily as the absence of something, right? For some they would jump to, well, peace is the absence of war, conflict, globally, right? Other people might go to a little bit more of an inward turn. Peace is the absence of sort of inner turmoil or distress. Young parents in the room, uh, like me, for us, peace is the absence of what? I heard a lot of answers, and I think all of them were somewhat right. I was thinking noise, right? Just give me some peace and quiet, please. <laughs> For, for others, though, uh, peace is not just the absence of something. It's a little bit more tangible than that. A good example of this, Pope Paul IV once said, No more war. War, never again. Peace. It is peace 
which must guide the destinies of people and of all mankind. See, that definition does capture that idea of peace being the absence of something, the absence of war, but also that peace is something a little more tangible, right? That it's this guiding force for all of humanity. And it was the exact same in the ancient world. All sorts of definitions for peace. The Greek word for peace is irini. And depending on who you ask, you would have heard a different definition. If you had talked to the Stoic philosophers, you won't be surprised to hear, you would have heard some of these inward realities. One commentator said they were going for something called imperturbability, which I thought was a great word, right? That nothing is going to get to you, disturb your peace. Plato would have talked more about peaceful conduct. But probably the biggest reference for peace in the ancient world is what we have now come to call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome, if you've studied Roman history at all, was ushered in, most historians say, by Caesar Augustus. But it came about after years and years of uh, bloodshed, of, of violent rebellion and squashing those rebellions. So much so that uh, some people question how peaceful the peace of Rome really was. One ancient figure, a Caledonian chieftain named Calgacus, is quoted as saying this, the Romans, quote, create a desolation and call it peace. The Romans create a desolation and call it peace. And so against this backdrop, all of these definitions of peace, we have Jesus saying to his disciples the night before he would be arrested, crucified, he says this, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus seems to think that he's offering a peace that is altogether different than what the world is offering, doesn't he? And so we ask ourselves the question, what does the peace that God gives look like? What do the scriptures say about God's peace? And how do we better understand that idea of peace through these narratives surrounding the birth of Jesus? Those are the questions we're going to explore for the rest of our time together this morning. Peace in Hebrew, you likely know this, is the word shalom. Shalom. But the interesting thing about shalom is that it's this concept that throughout the Old Testament period and then the intertestamental period, that time between the writings of the final books of the Old Testament and when Jesus was born and lived, this idea of shalom just grows and builds and progresses until it's this massive, glorious idea, okay? By the time of Jesus, two theologians say that shalom covers well-being in the widest sense of the word. Covers well-being in the widest sense of the word. It can refer to prosperity, contentedness. It certainly has a communal reality, right? Good relations between people, healthy communities, and there's definitely a spiritual reality in shalom as well, that, uh, that it's somehow associated with God's presence, that it's a gift from God. And so if we were to summarize shalom with two words, by the time of Jesus, two words, uh, you'll see them on the screen, they'd be wholeness and salvation. Shalom is wholeness, that it's things being put back together, it's, it's, it's right relationships between people, and it's somehow this idea of salvation, that God and his people are together, that, that they're reconciled. So I think you can agree, shalom is this big, massive idea or concept. 
And so then we ask the question, okay, if that's sort of what the scriptures paint as shalom, then how do the birth, the stories surrounding Jesus' birth contribute to that or illuminate that idea even further? Well, we had two narratives read for us. The first was read by Sam, if you were still coming in. She read that very interesting story about these angels out in a field just after the birth of Jesus, and they have these heavenly messengers come and visit them. And Andrea read for us a little bit earlier in the story surrounding the birth of Jesus when Mary has this angelic visitor. Let me just read, in case you were still coming in, a portion of what Sam read for us. I know we were all here for Andrea, but uh, let me just read to you what the angels say to those shepherds one more time. So this is Luke 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So how do these two stories surrounding the birth of Jesus illuminate or help us further understand this idea of the peace that God brings, of shalom? Well, first of all, we see in these two stories and throughout the scriptures that God has the power to make peace. God has the power to make peace. I think at times, certainly in that example of the Roman Empire, we recognize that it required a great deal of power to bring about the Pax Romana, right? To, to quell those rebellions to the point where nobody wanted to resist, and then to have this big enough military might that everyone thought twice about, well, maybe we heard what happened last time, so we're not going to start anything again. But we have this sense in these two stories that God has immense power as well. Think about his displays of power in these two stories that we've had read for us. The archangel Gabriel appearing to this unknown woman in some small town. And then as a result of his visit there, we understand that a barren woman, Elizabeth, will conceive and have a son, and as will a virgin. And indeed, they both do. We have a bright light appearing in this sheep pasture, and uh, an angelic messenger there joined by this heavenly choir. We have another sign given at the end of that passage that Sam read for us. The angels say, listen, if you're struggling to believe this in the midst of your fear right now, then you can fact check us. You can go and visit Bethlehem, and there you'll find a baby lying in a feeding trough. And indeed, they go and find it just as it was told to them. So we see that God has the power to make peace. But it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, so often when angels appear to people, these angelic messengers, they're generally bringing good, good news, and yet they so often inspire just great fear when they come on the scene. Sam read this for us in the ESV. It says that the shepherds were filled with great fear, and other versions capture it differently. The New American Standard says they were terribly frightened. That has sort of a British take to it, doesn't it? They were terribly frightened. Uh, and the NIV says they were just terrified. They were terrified. But we can, I think, understand where the shepherds are coming from, right? This, there's this very sort of physical reality happening. It's dark, and then it's light, and then they're singing, and what's happening? And yet Mary is also troubled in what Andrea read for us. But Mary might be troubled for some more thoughtful reasons. Let's look at verse 28 and 29 of Luke 1. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So while Mary may very well be disturbed by this angelic being just appearing before her, she's even more disturbed by the greeting that he offers, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Why would that be? Well, I think if we put ourselves in Mary's shoes, we can recognize that she probably realizes that her life is about to change, right? I don't know about you, but I don't have too many angelic beings visiting me in my living room. She probably realizes in that moment something's changing for me here, and perhaps even she thinks back to certain figures in Israel's history who also had similar greetings or promises made to them. There's many we could look at, but here's one. Moses, in Exodus 3.12, God says to Moses, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. If you've read the scriptures much, you know that Moses was indeed part of incredible displays of God's power and, and part of, as well, bringing a new level of shalom for the people of Israel, right? Helping them get closer to the promised land, ushering them out of slavery. And yet, I think we can also agree that Moses did not have an easy life, did he? So Mary likely recognizes things are about to change for me. We also realize, not only does God have the power to make peace, secondly, that God has always been making peace. That God has been going about a peacemaking project that has been in effect for hundreds of years. See, based on Mary's response to the angel, she seems to realize in that moment, yes, that things are about to change for her, but that she is part of something that is far bigger than she is. Think about what Gabriel says to Mary. He says that through her will come a king, a king in the line of David, and one who will reign forever. And this figure, friends, a king in the line of David who would take up the throne of Israel again, is, is a figure that loomed large in the hearts and minds of the Israelites. And it's because of passages like this that you'll see on the screen. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of, his, uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mary might very well be getting some sense that she's at the epicenter of this peacemaking project that God has been going about for generations. In fact, it stretches back way further even than the prophet Isaiah. It goes right back to Genesis, to the fall. Think about what God said to the serpent in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God makes this promise to the, the serpent, the deceiver there, that there would come a decisive death blow to him. 
And even the shepherds, too, we, we, maybe they don't understand it quite as much as Mary seems to, but they're given a taste that they're right in the middle of God's long peacemaking project as well. Think about what they're told. Luke 2, 11, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We read these terms, these titles, so often that they sort of lose significance for us. But a Savior for Israel, this is one who would come and save his people. And as the angels seem to suggest, maybe even the whole world in some way. And this Savior would be Christ the Lord, Christ the Messiah, the Lord, this, this one uh, commissioned and empowered by God in some way. So God has the power to make peace, and he's been doing it for generations. But next, number three, God's peace isn't always what we expect. God's peace isn't always what we expect. First, it comes about in unlikely places, doesn't it? God's glory in, in these stories shows up not in the temple in Jerusalem, not there in the Holy of Holies where we would expect it, but to shepherds in a field. The Savior isn't born to a woman of high standing, but to a young woman in this quiet, sleepy town. The king in the line of David isn't housed in a palace, but in a stable. I mean, think about what the, the angels say immediately after this, this promise. Unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. God's peace comes about in unlikely places and by unlikely means. See, right here from the beginning of Jesus' time on earth, we get the sense that this king in the line of David, this prince of peace, will not be the kind of king that we are used to. Right? I mean, after all, after hearing this chorus of heavenly warriors singing out, glory to God in the highest, the shepherds aren't told, strap on your swords, rouse the nation of Israel, cast off the Romans. No, they're told, go and visit a baby in a stable. And God would indeed make peace. He had the power to do it. He had been doing it, and he would. But instead of the Roman way, create a desolation and call it peace, Jesus would shed his own blood to secure our peace. This led Paul to write to the Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. And so when we think back to that promise that Jesus made to his disciples there in the upper room before his crucifixion that I read at the beginning, he says, my peace I give to you. Little did those disciples realize that in just a few hours, Jesus would offer up what? Himself his body on the cross. Likewise, those shepherds might not have realized it, but peace on earth, as the shepherds declared, was not simply uh, a blessing or a greeting in some way. It was a declaration of what was true. God's peace had just been born and was laying in a stable not too far away. And so what do we do with this, friends? What do we do with this understanding of peace? 
Well, my hope and my prayer is that just as Mary did, that we would realize that we're also in the middle of God's peacemaking project still today. See, through the person of Jesus, God's peace made this decisive breakthrough into the world, didn't it? And yet, we recognize, we all know, that shalom is not reigning in every corner of the world today, is it? Not even in every corner of our city. Wholeness has not been fully restored. And yet, if we remember that God has the power to make peace, that he's been doing it since the start of human history, and that he's quite happy using unlikely characters. We're in, I think we're, we qualify for that, don't we? Then may we respond as Mary did. Behold, we are the servants of the Lord. Let it be to us according to your word. Let's pray. Jesus, The scriptures say to us that you are our peace. That you bought peace between us and God, not by putting down your enemies, but through shedding your own blood. That you were born on this earth so that wholeness, salvation, shalom, could reign in every corner and crevice of creation. And so, would we put up our hands if we have been changed and transformed by you, Jesus? May we be carriers of that peace out into the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.